to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. Well, will you open your Bibles, please, to Job chapter 38. This is really the chapter that kind of brings everything to culmination, and it starts God's response to Job after all of these many chapters before. Uh, He responds to Job, he responds to Job's friends, and he kind of sets things right. Um, So we really need to make this the kind of the beginning of the end, let's say, um, uh, chapter 38. So we see here in the chapters following and including this one that that God's going to respond to all that has gone on in the previous chapters. And, you know, if you've been with us the whole time, you've known you've you've seen Job try to figure God out, try to find out what he's doing. We've seen Job's friends kind of do the same thing and try to bring clarity and, um, and, and understanding to what's going on in Job's life. And we see um, that a lot of times they're, they're accurate with what God is doing, and a lot of times they're not. But now we see God's response, and it's going to be perfect, and it's going to set everything in, in place. But throughout the, God's response are questions. And Job and his friends asked a lot of questions and answered a lot of questions throughout the previous chapters. Now we're going to see God's response. From Job's cries to be vindicated, we've seen that in many of the chapters, to his friends' calls for Job to recognize God's judgment. You remember, Job, you're a sinner. That's why you're suffering the way you you are. Just deal with it and, and, and do things right according to God's ways. We'll see all of those interactions kind of get explained and put in, it, put in its right place, as well as all of the mischaracterizations of God throughout these, the previous chapters. So God's going to put it all in place. No more conjecture, no more speculation about why is God doing this or that. Um, God will set the, the record straight. Some of what we read in these chapters about what God says and the way he sometimes even the way he says it may seem harsh to us. Um, It may seem like God is mocking Job almost, but he needs to humble Job. And I think in a lot of ways, I was talking to somebody earlier tonight about John chapter 15, where, where God is the vine dresser and he just prunes us off, prunes those things off that don't belong in our lives. But sometimes that hurts. And so for God to do the work that he wants to do, for us to be those, those people that he wants us to be, sometimes he has to do some harsh things. Um, but it's perfectly measured, like God always is, perfectly measured to what Job needed to hear. And God's the same with us. 
God's the same with us. As he reveals himself to us, it's done in a way that we individually, personally, can understand better of who God is and what he's doing in our lives. In chapters 36 and 37, remember Job's friend Elihu, he was able to actually bring out some things that Job's other friends didn't, didn't bring out in all of their chapters of, of their responses to Job. He was able to actually point out some of Job's self-centeredness um, in the way he... Um, he responded to God and what God was doing in his life and how sometimes that might have clouded his understanding of God. And so, you know, Elihu had many chapters in his speech, but a lot of it, there was some good, uh, there was some good things. And Elihu in, in the previous chapter spoke about God, the voice of God, remember, coming, in the th- coming as thunder. And now God will answer Job out of the whirlwind. In all of the previous chapters, Job and his friends tried to explain God's actions. And don't we do that sometimes when there's something going on in our lives and we don't, we don't quite get it, but we try to explain it. We try to find a way to, to just explain what God is doing, what's happening to us. But an explanation about God wasn't really what Job and his friends needed. It's not what we need. We don't need an explanation about God. We need a revelation from God. We need to hear from God himself about what he's doing in our lives. And we can only do that when we're attentive to God, when we're hearing from God. So, We don't gain a greater understanding about God or what he's doing in our life on an intellectual basis, right? We we gain a better understanding on on a personal, intimate basis as God reveals himself to us personally, intimately, individually, because we're all unique and special in his eyes. And sometimes he'll reveal his, his ways to us through blessings, and that's awesome. But sometimes he reveals himself to us through trials. And it's sometimes it's in the mountains, but sometimes it's in the valleys. Sometimes it's in a flood of mercy and grace that is just we know is from God that's pouring down upon us. But sometimes it's even in the dryness and the wilderness times in our life. And God is going to now take these last few chapters and try to show Job and, sh- and show his friends and show us um, exactly what he's all about. And he does this through a series of questions that God will ask Job. So jumping in in verse 1 in chapter 38, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, And we're just going to stop there for a second because we want to touch on that word whirlwind. The whirlwind in the Bible often is a description of God's presence. God's presence. In Psalm 77, 18, it says, The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. So here we see God answering Job directly. For the first time in this this entire book, we now see God actually answering Job personally, 
intimately, directly. And he makes no doubt about the fact that it's God. You know, sometimes we need, we, we, we may hear, we're not 100% sure that it's God. But God here is now stirring Job up. Stirring him up to prepare to hear all of the things that God is going to tell him. You know, sometimes in our lives, and I think more often in those times when we're kind of shutting God out or ignoring him, he needs to get our attention. He needs to get our attention. That's just all, just just the way it is. Sometimes we're not being attentive to God, and he needs to do something to get our attention. I'm reminded how, how God spoke to Moses, remember, in the burning bush. Boy, that got Moses' attention. Right, And so sometimes he has to do that with us. But he's doing that here with, with uh, Job. As he speaks to him out of the whirlwind. And so Job now is going to hear God, hear from God, know that it's God. And God's going to ask Job a series of rhetorical questions. Almost sarcastic in their tone, if you, if you listen to them. Um, but again... God was preparing Job to hear from him, preparing him to listen. So in verses 2 and 3, it says here, who is, who is this who darkens counsel by words of, without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me, God says. Man up, Job. Man up. This is where the rubber hits the road. Although Job was sure he had a good understanding of God's ways, God immediately puts that idea to rest. He tells Job, Job, you may think you know all about me, but I'm going to show you. I'm going I'm to prove to you who I am. God tells Job that although he thought he understood, his words contain no real knowledge of God, no real understanding of God. And that's not to put Job down, because when we think about ourselves and how much we really understand of God, it's so minuscule compared to his awesomeness, compared to his, his power, his greatness, all that he can do. Sometimes we diminish God's uh, greatness. Sometimes we doubt that he can do something. So we're really not any, any better, not, not, not any more knowledgeable, really, of God than Job was. And God wasn't questioning Job's integrity here. He was just questioning Job's ability to understand and explain the things of God. You know, for us, we may think we know a lot about God, but I think the more we think we know, the more we realize we don't know. It's just the way it is. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So it's not that God doesn't want us to know him. It's just that as human beings, we are limited in how much of God we could know. He's going to reveal himself more and more to us. But there are just human limitations on how much we can know of God. So God now kind of turns the table on Job. All these chapters where Job was questioning God and doubting God and wondering what God was up to. And God will now start to ask the questions. 
And I mentioned the last time he asks Job 77 questions throughout these chapters. So it's a full interrogation on the part of God. And just, just understand, this is not, God's ways are not meant to embarrass us. They're, it wasn't meant to discourage Job. It wasn't meant to embarrass him. But it was, meant to, it was meant to humble him and to get him to consider God's authority and his power. And I think sometimes, although we may not want to admit it, we need to be humbled by God. And sometimes there are things that happen in our lives that God does to humble us so that we can be in that place of really hearing from God. And although we don't like it, it's not pleasurable, but God wants us to be in a place where we can really receive from him. I think about God leading the children of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years. In Deuteronomy 8, this account It says, remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. See, there was a purpose. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna. How? Now, that's actually the grace of God. That's actually the care of a loving God. A food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See, that's God's grace. That's his love to us. Something jumps out at us as we read these verses that although the Israelites were, they were entirely responsible for their 40 years in the wilderness. That was their disobedience to God that turned an 11-day journey into a 40-year trek. But all in all that time, they were still being led by God. Isn't that amazing? That even when we mess up, that God's going to be there to lead us. He's going to be there to encourage us. He's going to be there to put us in a place where we can hear from him and we can know him better. You know, they saw great miracles in that wilderness wandering, right? But there was also purposes in that to humble them, to test them, to find out if they would be obedient. Sometimes we think our trials have no purpose, but we know that if God allows them in our lives, then he he always has a purpose. And it's in those things many times that God reveals himself to us. So moving on in chapter 38, in verses 4 through 7, God continues to question Job about some of these awesome things about the creation of the earth and the things that Job could never know about. And so he he says here, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? That's a good question. (laughs) Tell me if you have understanding, Job. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. So, again, you sense a little kind of godly sarcasm here. Where were you, Job? Did you measure the earth and lay out its foundations before it was even created? Well, of course not. You know, the answer to all of these questions is no, is not me. 
is it's you, Lord. So he's kind of refocusing Job here. Refocusing him to get his eyes off of himself. And listen, what Job went through, we, we know. We, we know all of the, the, the problems, the calamity that, he, that occurred in his life. We would never wish that on anybody. But sometimes our, our small problems become the focus of our lives, don't they? They become all we think about. And then we forget about God. God here is trying to refocus Job. He's, he's also using these questions here to show Job the limitations that he has as a human being on the knowledge of the things of God. And it isn't to humiliate Job, to get, but to get him to refocus, to think about God's greatness. It goes to show us all that creation is evidence of a creator, doesn't it? Just the awesomeness of creation itself. That the precision of the earth's dimensions and how it's fixed in the solar system all go to prove that there's a designer behind the design. That it wasn't a random series of events, but the handiwork of a mighty God. Only God himself and the angels were, were present at creation. And the angels rejoiced at the wonder of what God did. He calls them morning stars and sons of God here. That the angels, imagine the angels just sitting back and watching God with, with just a wave of his hand or, or a word of his, out of his mouth and creating things out of nothing. But Job wasn't there, right? None of us were there. Job wasn't there. How could he claim to know so much about God? But we see the beauty around us and we understand. And in turn, we glorify God. That's really what we're supposed to do. Romans 1, 20 and 21 tells us, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. So we look around us at the beauty of creation and the intricacies of of the different systems. And God's going to ask Job about a lot of these things as he goes through these questions. We look around and we understand if we're being honest with ourselves, we understand that this is God. This has got to be the hand of, of somebody outside of time and space, outside of this universe that could have made all of these things and put them in perfect order the way he did. And so now God starts to ask questions of Job about some of these elements of nature. And he asks them about the waters that cover the earth and the boundaries of those waters. In verses 8 through 11, he says, Or who shut in seas without doors, when it burst forth and issued from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, when I fixed my limit for it, and set bars and doors, when I said, This far you may come, but no farther, 
and here your proud waves must stop. So think about, think about the seas and the land masses on the earth and how come the seas don't just completely overrun all of the land all of the time. You would think that they would. The seas kind of don't, there's no, there's nothing physical that stops them except the hand of God that tells them this is how far you can go. No farther. This is it. This is your limitation. When we look at the account of creation, we see the seas that seem to appear out of the midst of the earth. And, you know, the words here, the poetic words about being like a baby being born, right? It says, burst forth and issued from the womb. It shows that, again, that intimate nature of God in creating all things. Genesis chapter 1 tells us of this account in verses 9 and 10. It says, Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. But then he put borders, right? He put these, the precision of the borders of the land and the seas And you see God's obvious hand upon it. Or else, like I said, the seas would constantly overflow the land. There would be no no way of stopping it. Proverbs 8.29 tells us, When he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth. That's God's hand. That can only be God. Who could do that? And God here was showing Job, again, in, in kind of this, this oddly sarcastic, godly sarcastic way, but still with grace and with, 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 uh, with gentleness. He was showing Job that he could never understand how this works. You know, when we start to think about some of these questions, we're humbled, aren't we? We have to be humbled because we don't understand how these things work. But we need to trust. We need to give God the glory. You know, in the ancient world especially, people would observe the, the forceful bodies of water and, you know, just how the waves would crash against the, the shoreline. And they would equate it to the power of God. Or in the pagan world, the power of their gods, the God of the seas. But they knew that there was something greater that was controlling all of these natural things and he controls all of the elements of the earth and Matthew 8 you know this account this this wonderful account of of Jesus just showing his power right when in verses 24 through 27 it says and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves but he was asleep And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Oh yeah, who could this be? It could only be the Son of God. No one else. So, just as they marveled 
at the power and the authority of Jesus, we too should be in awe of that. See, these are lessons for us also. As we just think about these things, we don't consider these things a lot. You know, sometimes we'll maybe we'll walk along the beach and we'll admire its beauty, but we don't necessarily always understand or consider God's authority, his sovereignty over all of that, his power over not only the creation, but the, the sustaining of all things, right? So God goes on here in verses 12 through 15, and he questions Job now about, his, about God's authority over the rising of the sun. And he says, have you commanded the morning since your days began? And cause the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. It takes on a form like clay under a seal and stands out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld and the upraised arm is broken. So God here is presenting himself to Job kind of as a general in charge of a military troop, giving orders and having those orders perfectly carried out. And of course, again, in in his way, he asked Job, Job, did you ever command the sun to rise? Did you ever cause the dawn to know its place, know its time? And of course, the answer is no. The sun rises and the sun sets at the very command of God as he established it in in the scientific way that he did. He, He established all of this, the rotation of the earth, the placement of the stars in the sky. God established all of that. And we thank the Lord. We should thank the Lord each and every day when the sun does rise, right? And that he continues to give life. And another day for us to live and to glorify him and to enjoy his creation. We should give him the glory. We should thank him each and every day for that. That the sun did come up. Imagine if the sun didn't come up. Now, God goes on in these next few verses here and questions Job about about another part of nature. Just the vastness of the earth. The majesty of the, of the land and the oceans. And in verses 16 through 18, he says, Have you entered the springs of the sea? Or have you walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the breath of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. So again, God here is showing Job kind of his limited understanding of the the earth and the oceans and the depths of the ocean floor. You know, it seems as though, I'm not not a a scuba diver or or anything like that, but it seems as though, you know, the, the, the oceans just go down forever, forever. And we see poetic language here, right, that adds a beautiful, vivid description to just the depths of the sea. And it's a picturesque way of asking Job, do you know how far down the ocean goes, Job? 
Because, of course, at that time, they had no way of going down to the, to the ocean floor. But he, he didn't know that. But today, even with our technology that we have today, we don't know exactly how deep the deepest part of the ocean is. According to um, scientists, they say the deepest place in the ocean is actually 36,000 feet deep. And it's found in, in the Pacific Ocean somewhere. And they call it Challenger Deep. But even there at the bottom of that, of that ocean floor, it's not flat or uniform. So there's variations in the, in the ocean depth, even there. So even the best scientists can't exactly tell how deep the ocean floor is. So God's saying to Job, of course, Job didn't know. They didn't have the technology back then, the understanding, the scientific know-how. But even today with our advancements, we don't know. Only God knows. So God goes on here in the next few verses in um, uh, 19 through 24. And he questions Job now about the darkness and the light. And how it, it affects man. And he says in verse 19, beginning in verse 19, where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place that you may take it to its territory, that you may know the paths to its home? Do you know it because you were born then or because the number of your days is great? Have you entered into the treasury of snow or have you seen the treasury of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble for the day of battle and war? By what way is light diffused? That's a good question. Or the east wind scattered over the earth. So God is saying to Job, are you, are you so old, Job, that you were there when I said, let there be light and there was light? Were you there at the beginning? He says here, do you know it because you were born then or because you were so old that you could know it? Of course not. Of course not. Nobody was. And, you know, we consider the book of Job probably the oldest written book in the scriptures. But even then, Job wasn't around. He asked Job if he knows where light comes from. I mean, I, we can't really explain where light comes from. But it's there. God created it. And God is the source of light. You know, the scriptures tell us that. No man could really explain the origins of light. You know, 1 John 1, 5 tells us that this is the, it says, this is the message we all have heard from him and declare it to you that God is light. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. God is light. You want to explain the origin of light, you have to go back to God. It's the only way. It's the only way. All of these questions that God is asking Job are meant to have us focus on his majesty, focus on his authority, focus on his sovereignty over all things, on his awesome power. And for us, I think it's a, a great lesson for us to just go back and continue to focus on those things. Now, in the next few verses, God is going to question Job about the rain and the rain's effects on man. 
in verses 25 through 30. He says, Who has divided a channel for the overflowing water or a path for the thunderbolt to cause it to rain on land when there is no, where there is no one, a wilderness in which there is no man, to satisfy the desolate waste and to cause and cause to spring forth the, the growth of tender grass. Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice and the frost of heaven? Who gives it birth? The waters harden like stone and the surface of the deep is frozen. So again, the natural occurrence of rain and its cycles that we learn about in our science uh, classes are really proof of God's power. Now, God here is suggesting to Job that Elihu's description, remember in the previous chapters, he he described uh, rain and the different cycles and the different seasons of uh, of earth, that all of those things were really revealing God's majesty, revealing God's, God's character. And God is asking Job, how much do you know about the rain? and its cycle, and its seasons, and its courses. Could Job plot rain's journey across the earth, describing how it would accomplish God's purposes? Of course he couldn't. You know, the book of Joel in in chapter 2, verse 23, tells us about God's purposes, even in the rain, and about his grace, and about his mercy. It says, Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the autumn rains because he's faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. Remember, mostly an agricultural culture, society back then. People depended on the rains to grow their crops, to feed their livestock, to be able to survive. And God graciously gave that spring rain and the, fall, and the autumn rain, you know, to grow and to harvest. And it's just God's grace. It's God's power. God asked Job if he knows if rain has a father <laughs> or if there was someone who gave rain its, its life and ability to water the land. He asked the same about the ice and the hail. And again, his questions are not to humiliate Job, but to get him to focus on God's power and to show Job and and us our our weakness, our frailty in all of these things. And not to get down on ourselves, but just to turn our focus to God, to give him all the glory. Charles Spurgeon did a, a, a masterful job at comparing the elements of nature to the grace of God, neither of which could be controlled or manipulated by man. We can't create grace. We can't make grace happen by our intellect or our wisdom or even by our good works. So Spurgeon says, you and I cannot command it. The presence of the most holy men in our midst would not of itself bring it. The most earnest preaching, the most scriptural doctrine, the most faithful obedience to ordinances would not make it necessary that we should receive grace. We can't make it happen. 
He goes on and says, God must give it. He is an absolute sovereign, and we are entirely dependent on him. But the next line is the most important, I think. After realizing God's grace, God's sovereignty, God's the only one who can give that to us, what does he say? He says, to what does this fact drive us? Drive us? What does it drive us to? It drives us to prayer. It drives us to worship. All of these things should drive us to worship and to pray for God to reveal himself to us, to give us an understanding of our limitations and God's grace, that we can't create it, we can't control it, we can't manipulate it, we can't earn it. We can't work for it. And so what do we need to do? The only thing we can do is to fall on our knees, right? And give God the glory to pray for God to continue. God, continue to shower your grace down upon us. Because we're lost without it, aren't we? We're hopeless without it. Apart from God's grace, we're lost. And we need to understand that. It's the only way to live this life by giving God the glory. God goes on here and questions Job on the nature of the constellations. I love this. And I love to look up in the sky and see the, the stars and the, and the constellations. And there's a few that are visible to the eye. You know, you can tell the Big Dipper, the Little Dipper. There are some that you can see. But he goes on and he says here, Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? Can you bring out Mazaroth in its season? Or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you set their dominion over the earth? Job, do you understand how orderly these things are? If you can look up at the stars in the sky, you know they're not up there by random because you can pick out certain stars in certain formations and you can continually go back and see them in the sky. You know it's not writ by random. You know it's God's hand upon it. But he questions Job here. Job, can you, can you do this? Can you make these things happen? Can you align the stars? Can you set the ordinances of the heavenly bodies? Can you put everything in its place perfectly in its place? You know, the stars and the constellations that he mentions here, we're, we're familiar with. Pleiades is that six or seven star constellations, part of uh, Taurus the bull. And it's one of the signs of the zodiac, right? And it's one of the nearest star clusters to Earth. We can spot it with the naked eye. It's beautiful. It's just... It's, it's, it's proof of God's hand upon it. And Orion, that constellation that's seen throughout the world, right, named after the, the hunter in Greek mythology, it's one of the most obvious and recognizable constellations in the sky. So God was kind of presenting Job here with some very obvious evidence as to who he was. And that's... Again, just God revealing himself to Job. And he does that with us. He wants us to know him better. God continues in, the la- in the, these next few verses, in verses 34 and 35, 
And he questions Job again about some of these natural occurrences, the clouds and the weather. And he says, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that an abundance of water may cover you? Can you send out lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? So God is asking Job if he could call out to the clouds and make them rain. Now, sometimes on a real, if we're in a real hot stretch in the middle of the summer, we would like to call out to the clouds and ask them to rain. But, of course, they don't rain on our command. They, didn't, they don't rain on Job's command. They only rain on God's command. As humans, we're powerless over all of these things. We can see the power of God in all of that. We don't have any power over it. And then in the last few verses here, he's going to question Job about where he thinks he got the wisdom and intelligence to think that he knew so much about God. And again, this isn't to bring him down or to discourage him, but just to show him that Job, you may think that you're wise, but if you have any wisdom, it's only wisdom that I've given you. Any other wisdom is, is, not, is not worth it. It's not going to show you who I am. So in verses 36 through 38, he says, Who has put wisdom in the mind? Or who has given understanding to the heart? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can pour out the bottles of heaven? When the dust hardens and clumps and the clods cling together. So again, God here graciously showing Job that even when he's right about some things, which he was right about God in many, many things that he professed, there's still so much that he doesn't know. And the same with us. You know, we can be great Bible scholars or students of the Bible. We can know the scriptures. And that, that reveals God. He wants us to do that. But again, I think the more we know, the more we read, the more we understand, the more we realize... We're so far from really understanding all of who he is. You know, we can have a greater understanding maybe than Job did of the dimensions of the earth, of the different natural laws that affect the weather and the planets and the stars and all of those things. We may have a greater understanding than Job did, but although we made tremendous progress over the centuries, we're still far from knowing everything that God can do, understanding God and his ways. And to make it more intimate and more personal, understanding how he deals with us. We don't always quite understand that. But he wants us to continue, right, to go back to him, to give him the glory, to yield to him, even in those times where we don't quite understand And say, okay, God, not my will, but yours. I know you have the best for me. I know right now this doesn't feel good. I know right now, for me, this is a struggle. I don't don't get what you're doing. But God, I trust you. I trust that you love me. I know you sent your son to die for me. I trust that you have the best for me. Because really... The only wisdom that's of any use to us is the wisdom that comes from God for us to understand him better. James says that beautifully in James chapter 3 as we close up tonight. 
He says in verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure. It's pure, pure wisdom, not corrupted by the things of the world. Then peaceable. The wisdom that comes from God should bring us peace. It's gentle. You know, we see God's hand, that intimate hand upon all of creation when we understand, when, when we get wisdom from God. It's willing to yield. The wisdom that comes from God causes us to humble ourselves and yield to him. Not to puff ourselves up, right? But to humble ourselves so that he may exalt us in due time. Full of mercy. We understand his mercy. When he gives us his wisdom, we understand so much better the mercy of God, the grace of God, and good fruits. Just knowing that whatever we do, we do it all for the glory of God. Amen? You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org, where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.